Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. Hi, it's Alex. Welcome to the Youth in Education podcast. In this episode, I speak with Tim Oates, Group Director of Assessment Research and Development at International Exams Organisation, Cambridge Assessment. Tim has had a prestigious career so far and was awarded a CBE for his services to education in 2015. We discuss assessment in England in this episode, a topic on everyone's mind this year after the COVID-19 pandemic prevented students from sitting exams as usual, leading to turmoil over how to award results. Tim and I talk especially about whether there is a continued need for GCSEs at 16 and how our system of A-levels compares with other nations. We also address the challenges raised by groups such as Rethinking Assessment, a coalition of private and state schools supported by influential voices such as Lord Kenneth Baker. They want to see current practices in assessment change. We discuss some of their concerns and the wider ongoing debate. I hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. I'd like to welcome today to the Youth and Education podcast, Tim Oates from Cambridge Assessment. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Good morning, Alex. It's lovely to have you here. Let's begin, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your background in education. Yes, of course. So I'm Group Director of Assessment Research and Development at Cambridge Assessment. Well, that's quite a mouthful. Actually, I run a big research team there, one of the biggest in Europe. And we work on both learning and assessment issues right the way across the age range. And we work domestically and internationally. We work in about 140 countries. We're privileged to get some real insights into the way in which assessment and learning plays out in different nations around the world. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Tell me a little bit about how you found yourself in this role. Well, I joined Cambridge Assessment in 2006, having worked for the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority before that, and indeed the National Council for Vocational Qualifications before that, during the 80s and 90s. Since I joined in 2008, I've done a variety of things in terms of developing qualifications and working on curriculum, but perhaps most notable was leading the expert panel, giving advice to the Secretary of State on the review of the national curriculum in 2010, leading to a revised national curriculum, which was implemented in schools in 2014. Fantastic. Yes, you've had an absolutely stellar career spanning many years and it's wonderful to be able to have you on the podcast to talk about some of your experiences and your thoughts on the topic we're going to discuss today. We're going to be talking about the idea of myth and misunderstanding in assessment in England and particularly discussing the debate around whether to scrap the current system of GCSEs and A-levels, which is something that, while it's gone on for quite some years, has really flared recently. And we've seen, for example, the formation of the Rethinking Assessment Coalition, who've been calling this year for the idea that we need to completely overhaul the system. As I say, it's not a new debate, but something that people seem to be particularly focused on at the moment. What are your kind of feelings 
this year about why this has risen up again and whether it is something that we need to discuss? Sure. Well, certainly we've been monitoring very closely all of the discussions that have been popping up for the last three or four years on the role of national qualifications. There's been quite a chorus of get rid of GCSE or get rid of A-levels. And and we we have analysed in in detail what it is that people are saying and the reasons for the statements they're making and, of course, what it is that they're recommending by way of replacement. So we've been monitoring things extremely closely. Talking today is not a sort of quick reaction to the most recent statements around role of qualifications in the education system, no, 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 we've been studying it for, for a long time. And in fact, we've got some very powerful background research, which we have done on international comparisons of education systems and the way that qualifications and testing is playing out in a range of nations. And I think those things can really inform this debate. We're also very anxious to ensure that we are developing the approaches to assessment, which will be necessary in schools, colleges and universities and other settings in the future. So we look to the past to understand things. We look across the world to get a good view of what's happening and the the pressures and developments. And we look to the future in terms of developing the assessment approaches, which we will undoubtedly need to deal with future challenges. Yes, and that perspective is really important, isn't it, to be able to take into account things that have happened so far, but also to look at the kind of changes that we might need to take into account going forward. And I think that is sort of one of the arguments that we've seen raised by by groups that want this change to take place. We've seen a lot of high profile voices involved in this debate, particularly recently, including people like Lord Baker. We've had representatives from some of the large private schools, but also from the state school sector, making the case that the current system doesn't fit with progressive technology and communication, that it's placing too much stress on young people and putting mental health at risk. But as you say, when we look at our system compared with other systems across the world, there are a number of similarities. And I'm aware that from your perspective, there is actually a lot of successful aspects to our system that people maybe aren't taking into account and maybe don't understand quite the impact of overhauling the current system that we have entirely. Do you want to talk through some of those points maybe? When we look at other countries, how does our system compare? What are our strengths and weaknesses? Those are really good issues. You asked why things have become a little more volatile and vocal recently. I think it's unsurprising. I mean, this summer we saw such a difficult situation emerge in terms of public qualifications Mm. with very confused messages, I think, floating around the system about the role of teacher assessment, the role of exams, the role of these calculated grades when the model initially was proposed in March through to August with the publication of results. So it's not surprising that debate has really kind of broken out in respect of so many aspects of assessment. Mm. Should we drive more towards teacher assessment? What's the role of exams? It was kind of inevitable in this very febrile state that we would hear many, many voices actually arguing quite contradictory things. So you're right, rooting this in history, rooting this in comparison with other nations, very fundamental. So I'll, I'll just go on to some of that. Thank you. I think we need to look back to how we implemented some major changes to our qualification system in the past. 
because we did it very, very successfully. I mean, the introduction of GCSE after Keith Joseph's announcement of the implementation of GCSE to replace CSE and O-Level. I mean, other nations looked at this and saw how successfully we introduced a major reform of our system. And of course, the teaching profession, by and large, was very vocal in its support and welcome for the GCSE. And that was done during the mid-80s, 1985, when GCSE was formally first introduced. Mm. So it's interesting now, something that was really welcomed by the profession is now being questioned. And we need to think about well, why is that the case? Now, what has happened since 1985 has been the development of national accountability systems, which inevitably have used qualifications data. And so exams and assessment are now very strongly identified in the UK with system monitoring with the monitoring of performance of schools and so on, which wasn't the case in the 1980s. And we have, therefore, to attend to context. What is it about the context which has led to exams assuming this kind of meaning in the system for pupils, parents and teachers? Mm. What problems have been created with that, with the introduction of those elements of the context? And what assets of qualifications have perhaps been overshadowed by that context. I think that's important. Mm. So that's where the international comparisons are extremely interesting. So there's a report from Cambridge Assessment, we did it some years ago, anticipating this debate about the role of GCSE and the role of A-levels. And it's got a rather odd title, but it's basically called the Red Herring Report. Mm -hmm. And the title is, Are the Arguments that GCSE is a White Elephant a Red Herring? Now, what that really suggests is in saying that the GCSE is unique and is problematic, is that a red herring Mm. when we look at other nations? And we think it is because almost all other developed education systems have high stakes assessment at 16. Now, this is about GCSE and we'll come on to A level in a minute, I hope. Mm -hmm. So the majority of high performing systems have high stakes assessment at 16. But the important thing when you talk to policymakers and educators in those other systems is that they say, oh, yeah, we have high stakes assessment at 16. And we look across to England with your GCSEs and say, actually, we're very impressed by the GCSEs because they are examination based. Kids can have their attainment, what they know, understand and can do represented fairly in an independent set of questions independent of the context in which they learnt the things about which they're having questions asked, and independent of the relationship which they have with the teacher. Mm. And in some countries like Germany, that issue of relationship contaminating the teacher assessment is a very, very vibrant debate. If they're having debates about that, well, we are having debates about the way in which examinations fit within accountability in the curriculum. So it's very interesting. We're not an outlier in having high-stakes assessment. We are a bit of an outlier in terms of having formal examinations at that point. Yes, one of the arguments that's been made is that a test at 16 that is quite so rigorous and comprehensive is not the right solution now that young people have to stay at school until they are 18. What would you say in response to that? Oh, that's when we can begin usefully to talk about A-levels. Because we have to consider GCSE 
A-levels, higher education and other routes altogether. Mm-hmm. I'll focus principally on the academic because I think that will really illustrate it. So people study a wide range of subjects in England up to 16. Obviously, they make choices around about the age of 12 or 13, depending on how long the key stage four period is in a particular school. So they have to make decisions about which subjects are going to focus on. But they study typically 10 programmes of study leading to 10 examinations. And here it's important to log something critical. In England, we tend to see the curriculum, secondary, post-secondary, as being built out of the qualifications. That is odd compared with some other nations. I hope we'll be able to return to that. So people will take typically 10. They'll then be assessed. And then, of course, when they go on to A-level, they'll make a choice of between three well, three or four subjects, usually three. Now, one of the things that people say about A-level is that they're very, very narrow. And this choice of three is untypical of what goes on around the world in terms of the narrowness of the choice. So I'll deal with that in a second. But just therefore log the role of GCSE. It's to provide an end certification in some subjects that people will stop studying formally. It's kind of the end point of studying those things formally. So it's useful to have an exam, a set of questions, essentially, which ask what people know, understand and can do after they have studied this subject for a period of time, recognising they're not going to continue formal study in that subject. So quite useful. Especially for core subjects. I'm just thinking I, I didn't take maths on to A-level and it's something that I think it's very important to have an understanding of, of people's basic knowledge in some of those course subjects, even if they haven't chosen to specialise in them later. And I think on reflection, not having any sort of way of measuring what I knew and understood about subjects like maths or even languages would have been perhaps problematic for me going forward and then looking at jobs in the future. I think that's spot on. That that really is a good way of looking at it. Mm. And in dropping subjects, it's not the case that people drop subjects that they're not good at. In many cases, they face difficult choices about subjects that they are good at. So it's very important they have the exam grade in the way in which you describe in those subjects that they're not going to continue with. Mm. Then let's look at the the so-called narrowness of A-level qualifications. Now, the moment I say that, what I'm doing really is failing to distinguish between curriculum and qualifications. Mm. And it's that which the international comparisons really throw a very interesting light on. So if you're in Finland or Germany, for example, you will study maybe eight to 14 subjects from 16 to 19. Mm -hmm. So the curriculum is much broader, much broader than we have in this country. But when you examine the qualifications which people take in Finland and in Germany, they will only take three or four examinations. And those examinations, we've looked at the papers, we looked at the duration of the examinations, they're almost identical to A-levels. So in reflecting on England, it's not the qualifications that are the problem. It is the way we see the curriculum. Mm. But there is an asset of this intense specialisation in England. Because what it does, it allows three-year degrees, three-year first degrees. Now, around the world, many countries, again, look with envy at our high-intensity, short-duration, higher education, our first degrees. 
they ask, how is it possible that you can have these three-year intensive degrees which result in such high attainment after three years? And the answer is, we have specialisation at 16 to 19. People really focus on three or four subjects, and they achieve in those two years in school, which is paid for by the state, note, the things which typically in other nations are achieved in the first year of four to six year degree programs, which notably would be paid for by families. Mm, mm. Now, you have to consider GCSEs, assessment at 16, including those subjects that are dropped, intensive specialisation at 16 to 19, and higher education as all fitting together in this country. And if we were to significantly broaden 16 to 19 examinations and the curriculum, we would have to look at what the implications were for the number of teachers, literally the number of rooms in colleges, the duration of study and the impact on higher education, which currently is paid for by families. Now, when people say get rid of GCSE, parents are not being asked, well, would you like to get rid of GCSE and pay for an additional one to two years of study at university for your children? Mm. Now, that's why we have to approach this in a sophisticated way. It's not enough just to call for the end of GCSE. We have to look at the total ecosystem of assessment at 16, assessment at 16 to 19, and assessment from 19 to 25. And only then can you really approach with the appropriate level of sophistication the policy question which get rid of GCSE addresses. Yes, it would have to be changes that meant that you had a coherent system as a result, rather than removing one part that then has a knock-on effect on the rest for young people and for families. That's exactly right. I mean, we do have the option here for young people to pursue different routes. And I know, for example, that the International Baccalaureate is one option that is seen particularly favourably by some people. What are your thoughts on the IB as an option here? And how does it compare to A-levels? I mean, it is interesting, the role of international qualifications in the domestic scene. Mm. I think one of the issues around GCSE is it's increasingly been seen over the last two decades as something which is determined by the state. And people don't recognise that schools can make wider choices of qualifications, the IB being one of them. And there are quite a few state schools that use the autonomy which is available in England to look quite widely. The IB is a demanding programme. It does demand some core foundation elements around critical thinking and history of European thought, which make it quite a demanding programme. And some schools which have adopted it have dropped it only a few years later because it isn't suitable for all kids. Some schools, typically independent schools, and Wellington amongst them, offer a mixed diet of A-levels and IB, depending on the choices and preferences of young children and their aspirations. I think, Alex, that's something to note. The data tell us something very interesting. So we've looked at the issue of who chooses in terms of subjects at GCSE and A-level. And what we find in GCSE is that increasingly, students' choices are constrained by what the state is saying in terms of targets and what schools are saying are viable option blocks for the school. So parents and pupils perceive option choices at GCSE as being quite constrained. By contrast, at A-level, it's remarkable. 
the most common combination is maths, chemistry and biology. And that's driven by the demands of medical schools. Mm. But that's the most common, the most common combination. But that most common combination is only taken by around 5% of A-level candidates. Hmm. Only 5%. So we stopped counting at over 20,000 combinations of A-levels which are taken by students. Hmm. Students really take what they want to study in A-level. This is a very good thing because if they enjoy and are motivated by the choices that they make at A-level, then it will maximise their learning. They'll make the best use of the learning offered. And that's great for them in terms of progression. And it's great for society. It's great for the state because they're getting maximum bang for buck because they're funding 16 to 19 and kids are learning in a very motivated and intensive way because they're able to choose things that they enjoy and that they're really motivated to participate in. So that's a real asset of A-levels, which is often not spotted. Yes, that variety is really important, isn't it? I remember as an English teacher, the difference between teaching in sort of key stage three, key stage four, and teaching at A-level was really marked because of the sense of ownership and the personal choice that takes place when young people opt for their A-levels. There was really a feeling from young people that they had moved into a very different phase and felt quite differently about learning because of that opportunity to specialise. And that's really quite exciting, I think, to teach a subject with a, a smaller group of young people who are passionate about it enough to want to take it to the next level. Yeah, you definitely get that sense of how important it is to them, which is lovely. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I think there are a few sort of different issues around this idea of the system. And I think what's coming out of what we're discussing here is that maybe it's less around the process of changing the exams that we have and maybe more changing how we feel about the system and how we feel about the curriculum as well. We've seen both the argument that the current system we have is creating too much stress, both on young people and on teachers and affecting mental health. And also that it's sort of squeezing out the opportunity for for creativity and, and curiosity what would you say in response to those arguments yeah i mean we've been over the last 20 years measuring the level of stress and well-being of children mm. far more than we have in the past and unicef unesco and other organizations have done very good international work on this and we need to be aware very much of the way in which undue stress can have an adverse impact on children I see exams and assessment as just asking really good questions. I mean, well-designed questions uh, stimulate thinking as well as allow us to accurately represent and capture what young people think, can do, and so on. So good questions are absolutely fundamental. And sometimes we wrap them into exams. Sometimes now we offer them online as part of learning. And sometimes it can be exactly the same question. This is a very good thing. So... It's good that we're monitoring well-being. It's inevitable that asking questions can be stressful. A certain level of stress is good because it encourages people to think harder, perhaps think more widely, do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, mm. beneficial things for them that they wouldn't otherwise think of doing. But an undue level of stress is inappropriate and we need to guard against that, that's for sure. Now, we think the qualifications have become stressful in inappropriate ways. And we need to continue to try to look at innovation in assessment, which builds assessment into instruction in a way that it supports learning, as well as accurately reflects achievement. I'm also worried about the stress on teachers, though, and all of the things that we've learned from the workload survey. 
let's just reflect on that in terms of the call for abolishing GCSE. Now, we used to have, many, many years ago, things like Mode 3 CSE, actually devised by schools, run by teachers and validated by exam boards. But the workload was enormous. At the time, teachers were perfectly prepared to take on that workload because they didn't have massive workload issues and administration coming down on top of them from other places. Mm. And that's how the situation has changed. In calling for a lot more teacher assessment, we have to think about the assets and problems of teacher assessment. And workload is critical in that. We also have to think about what's happened to those nations which have teacher assessment alone. And Sweden is an excellent case. Sweden is really wringing its hands at the moment because they introduced voucher schools, wanted to raise quality through competition between schools. They depend on teacher assessment. And what they've seen is a brilliant report by two economists in Sweden. What they've seen is a dramatic rise in grade inflation. So the grades have improved dramatically. But in Pisa and Tim's, the underlying performance of the education system has, I mean, I choose my words carefully, it's plummeted. Mm. So there's been a massive improvement in apparent improvement in grades, a massive fall in underlying educational standards. Mm. So Sweden has been asking, what's been going on here? And at the same time, this assessment is very demanding of teachers' time. Now, I think that what we will see in innovation and assessment is a lot more digital assessment, providing really good questions that serve the purposes of learning, as well as recording attainment, them being integrated into instruction, but them also contributing evidence that can be accumulated and present summative assessment. Now, there are all sorts of challenges in that, but I think we're seeing the emergence of both theory and practice, which will enable us to do that. That's what we're looking forward to in Cambridge as a means of innovating from the assets of GCSE and A-level that we have at the moment. But we need to be aware that some of the kind of digital solutions that are being implemented in schools actually adversely increase teacher workload. And in some cases, they lock in low expectations because they work on the basis of, well, can you answer this? And if you answer that, you're tracked into a particular track, high or low. And if you're tracked into the low track, you never see the more demanding questions that those that have been tracked into the high track actually see and experience. Mm. And we're very concerned about that, actually. So in developing innovative assessment, we have to be very aware of the model driving it and the impact on teachers and pupils and the impact on the progression of young people. That's really interesting. Thank you. That's really helpful. And again, looking forward to the future, another argument that's been put forward by groups that feel we need to rethink our system of assessment is the idea that actually for employers, the current exam system doesn't provide them with the right information or enough clues about what they want to know about the young people who they might be considering employing. It's interesting, for example, that Lord Baker is is taking this view in particular, and we know that he's a, a champion of vocational qualifications and apprenticeships. I wonder, from your perspective, do you feel that the current system is providing the right information to employers and do we need to make any changes there to adjust the feedback and the understanding that the current exam system is providing for employers about young people? 
Well, I, I, I mentioned in my introduction that um, I worked many years ago in the National Council for Vocational Qualifications and absolutely championed the role of vocational education in the English system mm. and emphasised the importance that it has for young people, for the economy and for society. And I do commend the recent governments in the extent to which they have promoted apprenticeship and vocational learning. And it's quite clear that as we enter a very difficult economic period, we could learn from countries like Germany, where when they know that the economy is going to go into a moribund phase, it's recognised that young people will stay in education training for longer. And therefore, it's vital to have them acquiring the skills which will be needed on economic revival. This means a strong FE system. Mm. This means a strong adult education sector. It means strong vocational learning and vocational qualifications. I'm very pleased to hear this on Radio 4 day after day. It's great. I mean, there is policy recognition. And so the things that Lord Baker has been saying for a long time are now really being built into policy responses. This is good. Now, I do question some of the things that employers say, because they say they're after certain skills and knowledge, but they pay for something rather different. So they say they're all about critical thinking and innovation and so on. But when you look what qualifications get significant wage return, it's actually the core elements of English and mathematics, particularly mathematics. So they talk about these broader skills, but if people have high attainment in the core elements of mathematics, they will earn significantly more. That's what Anna Vignol's work says, and that's what, indeed, Alison Wolfe's work said over 20 years ago. It's still the case. Mm -hmm. So employers say one thing, but I pay more attention to what they actually do. And they want core elements of science, core elements of mathematics, precisely the things that are at the core of our GCSEs and A-levels. When you monitor the wage return analysis, you know that that's what's absent from our economy, from the skill base of our employed workers, and it's what employers pay more for in young people. So we must be very clear about this in terms of where we go to for dependable messaging about what young people should focus on in school. VET is critical, vocational education and training, Mm. but it's not just this rhetoric of broad skills that we should pay attention to. It's really the core knowledge and core skills within disciplines which are needed in the economy and for which employers pay. Yes, that's very interesting. It's so important to pay attention to actions, sometimes alongside words, isn't it? And I think in our work, certainly, we have seen some examples or read about examples where employers say that they are looking for certain skills or don't require certain skills. And then actually, when you uh, scrutinise the job description, other things are required when they said that their approach is much broader and, and more general. So yeah, it's an interesting issue and certainly food for thought for employers to consider when they're hiring young people. Thank you very much. We've talked a little bit about the future there. Is there anything else that Cambridge Assessment is looking forward to at the moment or thinking about that you would like to share with us? Well, we absolutely monitor what's happening in the economy and where there are shortages. So only this morning, we heard on Radio 4, the government emphasising the shortages that we have in technology and science occupations, Mm. which are very, very broad. I mean, medical through energy generation 
and so on. So whenever there's a skills shortage, we need to understand what we need to do in education to make sure that the economy is well served. That sounds terribly reductivist, but of course, if we prepare people well for the future in terms of the economic and social needs, that's a benefit to individuals as well as the economy and society. So that's one aspect of looking forward to the future. Where are there significant um, skill shortages, ranging from the care sector through to engineering? Then we have to think about, well, how do qualifications and assessment function to help support learning programmes? And it is clear that GCSE and A-level have a vital role in terms of specifying what the syllabus should be, what the curriculum should focus on in terms of outcomes. And so again, examinations are not a sort of a trivial addition. They're right at the heart of our education system. When you, when you pick up an exam specification, it highlights the skills, knowledge and understanding which should be seen as the outcome of a programme of learning. Mm. They shouldn't overdetermine the learning too much, but they serve as this vital reference point for young people to be clear and teachers to be clear about what you should be deriving from a learning experience. And we've got messages out of the teaching profession in Scotland that that hasn't been going well in terms of the curriculum for excellence. So we have to link learning, assessment, progression together. I said earlier that I see assessment in a very broad way, which helps with the particularities. And that broad sense of assessment is, what is a good question? Mm. And we're increasingly using online facilities for making those questions available. Isaac Physics is brilliant. That was put together by Lisa Dardine Wright and Mark Warner with DfE funding in Cambridge, working with Cambridge Assessment to select the very best physics questions and make them available online to A-level physics students and teachers. That's enriched their learning programmes because they're great questions, which kids are looking at vigorously over the weekend. Mm. 150,000 hits a day now, Mm. and it prepares them well for the exam. So it helps them to integrate their learning. Some of these questions help them bring together things that they've learned. Some of them are really focused on particular aspects, say, of kinetics. And as a result, kids are receiving more exciting learning opportunities, delving down deeper into physics, and they're getting better A-level grades as a result. So the heart of all this is good questions, delivered well, opening up learning, and opening up opportunities to learn, not in the manner in which some of these flight path systems and tracking systems close down the opportunity to learn. Mm. And as I said earlier, if we can build these questions seamlessly into instruction, then hopefully we can also gather evidence as the learning progresses, which we can use in final certification through e-portfolios, etc., diminishing perhaps the volume of end assessment that we need to do. Mm. I think that's a really fantastic way of actually viewing the process of assessment and the idea of interesting questions and I think maybe that's something we need to return to both as a message to to teachers and to young people to remember that 
the process of answering really interesting questions with knowledge that you've gained over a certain amount of time and being able to manipulate that knowledge to find the right answers can be a really exciting and enjoyable process. And it's something that we do throughout learning and to view exams just in the same way as answering those questions when you're in the classroom with your teacher or when you're discussing something that you're interested in with your friends, perhaps. There's a real pleasure in that. And I think it's quite easy with the sort of broader image of exams and assessment to lose that thought about how satisfying and an enjoyable process that can be when you take away some of the stress and the pressure that we automatically associate with the idea of having to sit an exam. To return to that idea, I think is really nice and something that I hope young people can keep in mind. I really appreciate everything that you've shared with me today, Tim. Thank you ever so much for your time. It's been great to speak with you and to hear about the issues that are on your mind and at the forefront for Cambridge Assessment at the moment. And I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful. Bye-bye. Bye now. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.